Quantlayer is a software consultancy based in Brooklyn, New York. All opinions expressed by podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Quantlayer. The information presented should not be construed as investment advice. Guests may maintain positions in assets mentioned in the podcast. got Vikram from Quantlayer, and thanks for listening to our 20th podcast. On this episode, Faison and I do a victory lap for alerting our users to the ZRX addition to Coinbase before everyone else. We then get into a discussion of how exchange additions are similar to public market IPO first day trading pops, like what we saw in Elasticsearch recently. We then talk about the state of crypto reporting and how it has created a mix of pay-to-play bad actors, mainstream media outlets offering 10-year-old FUD over and over, and well-meaning actors who create consensus views that smart, contrarian thinkers can profit on by taking the other side. We then do a deep dive on Monero and its recent success in transaction fee reduction from their implementation of Bulletproofs. If you enjoy our podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review us on iTunes. It would help us out a lot. Thanks, and enjoy the episode. Hey, everyone. You've got Quant Lara here. Vikram speaking. I'm joined by Fizan. Hey, everyone. First off, we should call out an alert we got literally before everyone else. So a couple weeks back, symbol ZRX, that's the Zero X project, got added to Coinbase. Uh, it ended up moving immediately about 30%. So it was a pretty solid move after getting added to an exchange. You see this kind of stuff all the time. Coins getting added to exchanges pop and then coins getting removed from exchanges fall. So one of the alerts that our dashboards puts out are, you know, we keep track of when exchanges add and remove coins from their listings. One example that came to mind was a delisting that happened in early January. There was this token called Mysterium, and Mysterium is this decentralized P2P security and privacy-focused node network. Their first application is a P2P VPN. So I'll just read off from their website how they describe themselves. Mysterium is a network of nodes providing security and privacy to Mysterium end users. The first application of this will be the Mysterium VPN. Combining powerful encryption reputation mechanisms and layered protection protocols, our ambition is to build an entirely infinitely scalable P2P architecture, which becomes the privacy layer for the web of the future. And then it's worth mentioning a little bit of their economics too, because all this stuff basically rolled into why people had really high expectations of them. We also are completely rethinking privacy as a foundational piece of Web 3.0 architecture with Mysterium Network. Mysterium Network acts as a marketplace. It is open source software which allows anyone to join the network, both as a one, node runner, a seller of unused network traffic, or two, a customer, a buyer of VPN service from Mysterium node runners. And node runners earn MIST tokens, it's a MYST for bandwidth services. So it sounded like a really ambitious project, so much so that when they ICO, there are really high hopes for them. And the thing flew from pennies to dollars like so many other coins back last year. But it got crushed faster than the rest of them. Why? Because they started getting delisted. So Bittrex is one of these crypto exchanges in the US. Uh, I thought their ranking was a lot higher when I was doing a little research into this, where it was listed on CoinMarketCap. It's actually number 40 now. I really thought it was you know in the top 10. But back when Mist was on their exchange, they were a much larger player. 
So it was one of the few options uh, within the U.S. for U.S.-based traders to trade tokens on. So when Bittrex announced they were going to delist them, Mist was down 25% immediately because I remember seeing it. It was down 25% over the course of like an hour. Oh, wow. Yeah. And then kept selling off. So it was in the dollars to something like 10 cents right now. The whole move to 10 cents took a bit longer, but the thing got crushed pretty hard, pretty fast. So why do coins that get delisted get hit? Because it makes them less attractive to traders and holders for a couple of reasons. One, it reduces liquidity for the coin. So if traders want to get in and out, it makes it harder and gives that asset a liquidity discount in the same way that getting listed on an exchange gives the asset some premium. That's why they end up popping. Two, it can indicate there's something wrong with the asset. Is it under investigation? Does the exchange see some technical risks within the project? Do they just simply not want to take all that, any of that risk on? So when the exchanges do these particularly these delistings, do they just delist it silently or is there a bit of like a, not a postmortem, but like, this is why we're taking this off or what level of information do you get about these things? So it's a mix. Bittrex, in this case, what they do is they put out on their blog, they actually, it's almost like once a week, they'll have a little update of like what they're going to add and what they're going to remove. So this particular alert came out when they published their blog report on what they're going to be listing and delisting. For a lot of other exchanges, you know, we're tracking a bunch now. It's all over the place. A lot of them just list or delist it in their API. Like you wouldn't know. And that's pretty bad in terms of like trader customer UX, right? It's good for us. Yeah, it's great for us and our customers. But for like, if you trade on an exchange, you don't actually know whether the exchange is going to list your coin or not. I mean, that's ridiculous. There's no standardized like diligence or set of standards that they follow. Yeah, they're all just doing their own thing. And Coinbase was a mix of the ZRX token. We actually caught it off of their API. So we found out we had it before they announced it, before anyone else saw it either. So we're literally the first to the market on that. And you've been tweeting most of these out, right? Yeah, you can all follow us at QuantLayer, Q-U-A-N-T-L-A-Y-E-R. And we have a small subset of the kind of alerts that we put out. I've been trying to tweet more because I think that at least generates interest so that people know exactly what they're building. I've been also tweeting some more uh, screenshots and GIFs of the dashboard itself. So you can actually see what like searching would look like and things like that. Then you just come to the site, QuantLayer.com, and actually sign up for it. So listings and delistings, you want to get notified of these things what's being added to and removed from exchanges, what our dashboard alerts you on real time. So with ZRX, it got added to Coinbase and then popped 30%. So why is Coinbase such a big player? So this is another thing you want to have a good understanding of. Um, this plays with sentiment and just consensus in the market, not like blockchain consensus, but just market consensus, like what most people think. So the story goes, Coinbase is so big that if a new coin gets added to it, it's naturally going to get bought. The argument is basically, look at Ethereum, look at Litecoin, which arguably Coinbase helped bring to the broader market, Bitcoin even. So I don't personally buy this narrative. You know, one obvious example is Bitcoin Cash, which is trading well below where it opened on Coinbase. You know, it opened on Coinbase at like $3,000. Now it's trading at $400, 430-ish. I mean, it's probably a lot of that. So as a trader, you'd want to pay attention to that too. And that plays into what I was saying before about sentiment. So you want to get notified that something is going to get added to an exchange. And when the market is just super hot, that move 
like if this was last November or December and ZRX got added to Coinbase, it would have been up some like stupid amount. Yeah, like 400%, something ridiculous. You know, whatever, that's nothing to laugh about, but like 400%, yeah, it, it would have gone up multiples. You know, people tend to think of this as a bear market. It doesn't have like the bullish sentiment that it had last year. So it's worth keeping track of that stuff, but you still want to know when things get added and removed. And things get removed, like undoubtedly they're going to get hit, whether or not into a bullish or bearish market. So if something gets added to Coinbase, I don't think it naturally means it's going to go up in value. In fact, it might just give sellers another larger avenue to dump their holdings. So with CRX, you know, we saw some reporting come out of The Block, which is this crypto reporting outfit here in New York. They had found that a bunch of ZRX holdings have moved out of Polychain's wallet to some other address. So what does that mean? It could mean any number of things. It could mean that they're going to send it to an exchange. Maybe they're going to, they sent it to a custodian. Like I think there's some theory that Coinbase has institutional custodianship. So maybe they sent it to that address. It's hard to say, but it's worth just keeping track of all this stuff that we do. You know, anyway, we'll see right now coins getting added to exchanges, short term, move them. We'll see what the effect long term is. In some ways, it reminds me a little bit of how IPO'd stocks would move dramatically on their opening days. We saw this a bunch in the 90s with tech stocks, and we saw it again with Elasticsearch. And if you guys want to listen to our deep dive into Elasticsearch, I think this is our most popular episode so far. The one before that was the Crypto Custodian one we did, episode nine. This one's episode 15. You guys should check it out. We basically go into who Elasticsearch is, what they do, uh, how they use open source as a revenue driver. The the title of the episode is open source as a revenue driver. And both of us, I remember talking about it. We didn't talk about it on the podcast. We were just at the in the office, like we were talking about, we use it on all our projects and we really like it. And I think it'll be a pretty big player in the future. And we were interested in actually buying shares in this, at least I was. I don't know about you, Fizan. Yeah, I was pretty bullish on Elasticsearch in general. Yeah. So initial pricing was in the teens. I think it was like $19. And then they priced in the mid 30s. I know it's not going to open where I want it to open, which would have been like around 30 to 40. You know, maybe you give it like 30% premium tops, but no, it opened at 70. Anyways, assuming that they double sales next year, if you were able to get into the 30s, you'd be paying 10x next year's sales, but it's like, it's almost 20x right now. So still like the company and the stock, but you know, I'm cheap. So I'm going to wait to buy this thing when, when there's a chance. You often have a chance to buy expensive stocks. There's going to be a few things that'll put pressure on Elasticsearch. So the two big ones are earnings risk and the upcoming IPO lockup. And I'll talk about that first one first and then the second. But basically, IPO companies have really high expectations around them. So that means that they have to hit their numbers and beat their numbers or they're going to get clobbered. Just think about it this way. Just put yourself in, in their shoes. So you're going public. Your banker takes you around selling you. So it's your job to sell your stock to investors. To do so, you have to talk yourself up, probably give fuzzy positive guidance for the next quarter or a year. At some point, the SEC said you can't give uh, specific guidance during IPO roadshows. IPO roadshow is basically when bankers take a company going public around to investors. But during this process, you sit in front of your investor and you explain to them like why they should buy your stock, like what it makes you so special, like how are things going to go? I mean, these are like small meetings. 
there's some group meetings, but a lot of these meetings, especially with like big clients of banks, you can have a one-on-one conversation with an investor, like at Fidelity or something, or even multiple different portfolio managers at Fidelity. Companies still do, they probably don't say like, I'm going to make a hundred million dollars next quarter, but they're going to have this elaborate dance of words. And it's like a scene from Game of Thrones where everyone knows what they're asking, but all the answers involve reading between the lines. So you're on the roadshow, you give positive guidance during the roadshow. And then the first quarter out of the gate is really important. If you miss, that just makes you look really bad. Like you lied to investors or you're dumb. Like you're so dumb, you couldn't forecast out a quarter. I remember my iBanking days, one of the companies we did a follow-on offering for actually missed their quarter. A follow-on offering is just an offering where a company after they've IPO'd sells more stock to raise more capital. So it's really common in the past. I don't know if it's as, I don't know what the numbers of the stats look like, but it doesn't feel like it's as common now. But you would do your IPO and then sometime later you could raise more capital. Especially if you're beating your numbers, you could raise a lot more in capital at a better valuation. It caused a ton of gossip in the office. It was as if the banker's fault that they missed. Just think it's silly. It has nothing to do with the banker. It's 100% the company. Either way, it put a ton of pressure on you as an issuer. And so I think it's always silly to give super aggressive guidance during roadshows because you're just setting yourself up for failure down the line. But there is a gray area to figure out between selling enough so your IPO does well and and also so you don't oversell yourself. Right. Otherwise, you're leaving too much money on the table. Yeah, exactly. One of the jobs of your banker is to figure that out. Like what price to actually price you at. So 19 to the 30s and then opening at 70, they left a lot of money on the table. But it's tough. Like I said, it's a gray area. If you go around to your investors trying to sell a deal at 20 times sales, that's going to make the banker look stupid too. And there's literally no room. So I know it's hard. There's no like exact answer, but... If your stock doubles on your opening day, you just, you know, it's too bad you missed out. Maybe they could have given you another 10%, 15%. That's a lot of money. The other thing that's going to put pressure on Elastic is that they have a lockup expiring in six months. So typically insiders are locked up from selling company shares for a period after an IPO. This is a supply demand issue. If there's a ton of stock, which is what insiders typically hold, you know, they're going to hold a lot of the company, majority of the company, insiders being, you know, venture capital that had been invested, uh, employee stock, management stock, and whatnot. If they're going to sell, and they're going to, you know, they put years of their life into this. The VCs have to have good returns for their LPs. They're going to sell. And the lockup is to prevent a lot of that stock from coming online immediately, because that would end up depressing the price. Uh, after some period, after the IPO, the insiders can start selling. So this is going to cause Elastic's price to take a hit uh, when the lockup expires. And it won't necessarily cause a crash because I think banks are smart enough to like figure out a way to do this. Maybe it'll be like a period of selling over an amount of certain amount of time, but it will hold a stock from like going higher. So between these two things, it's entirely plausible that you'll have a chance to get some stock at a better price than where things are today. Just because you really like a company doesn't mean it's a buy at every price. Hmm, that's interesting. Another topic that I've been thinking about after seeing a lot of the crypto reporting going on is just the state of the crypto reporting market. So by reporting, I mean like journalists and media, independent research analysts and so forth. 
This is one area of crypto that's been really disappointing. Uh, just the general like media coverage of it. And there are a few issues. There are three issues in particular that I see with it. The first, so, okay, a lot of the crypto reporting market is dominated by these unprofessional media outlets. And they're unprofessional because they're basically pay to play. They take money for coverage. So the reason I've known, the, known about this is like I've reached out to these people and I've talked to them and they want a significant amount of money for coverage. And this is totally ridiculous and outlandishly insincere reporting. Yeah. And it's really bad for the ecosystem because with the general public, credibility is still an issue of the whole cryptocurrency space. And stuff like this doesn't help, like if they can't trust the reporting. And your average person is not going to go out and like know which outlets are reputable versus not. And then, of course, the mainstream media has not done a great job, but we'll talk about that later. And then it probably allows for some indirect market manipulation where, you know, if you pay a few of these outlets, you can probably get the price of your currency to move if they're putting out enough positive articles. Yeah, that like opens up a broader issue too. So there's this uh, kind of independent researcher, Jeff Goldberg. I've met him in the New York crypto scene. Really nice, really smart guy. What he's been doing is like unearthing these these like swarms of Ripple bots that all tweet at each other, retweet each other, like each other's posts, comment on each other's posts. And by bots, I just mean more broadly. It's like a it's a concerted effort to sell Ripple on Twitter. And by sell, uh, I mean like the concept and the token and whatnot. We'll link to some of these in the show notes, but he has these like really cool graphics of how all these accounts are interconnected. Imagine like a Venn diagram of clouds and each cloud is a network of Twitter accounts. And you can actually see in the graphic like how all these accounts are connected to one another. He used the Twitter API and like some other um, software to do this, but it's been pretty interesting to see. And I think the supposition, and I don't want to put words in his mouth, but I've seen others say this, that a lot of these bots are are paid. And I wouldn't put it past, given how much money people made in crypto, like a few years back, like if you want to sell your asset, uh, it's very likely like you can just put up capital to like make it more popular. So I see this with pay to play reporting. That's a major problem. Yeah. The last thing I would say is that you know, a big barrier to mainstream adoption is just education. Like there's a lot of people don't know that they need to know. And if most of the stuff that they're seeing is incorrect or just like hype around price, then that's not going to happen. Yeah, it's embarrassing. The second thing is mainstream media outlets. These are like Wall Street Journal, Forbes, Bloomberg. They're also really bad about crypto porting too. And they get so much stuff wrong and they report on the same concept over and over again, like Bitcoin being expensive to mine, a danger to the environment, only used by criminals, only on the dark web, sell drugs. Like It's been 10 years, guys. Yeah. They just need to watch the that Coursera, of course, just watch the first few videos and be able to write dramatically better articles. Yeah, that's true. I don't know if you were being facetious or not, but I think they actually would. No, I'm, I'm actually entirely serious. Uh, everyone that I run into that's genuinely interested in crypto, I just tell them, like, take a day, spend a few hours. You don't even have to watch the whole series, but, you know, the Arvind Narayan course on Coursera, which we'll link in the show notes. Um, if you just watch those videos at one and a half speed, you'll have a 
decent understanding of just like what it is at a fundamental level, which what you can see in the writing with a lot of these journalists, they completely miss. Yeah. There's this whole like meme, D-Y-O-R, uh, do your own research. Like that's what that is. D-Y-O-R is not like going to Reddit to see what everyone else thinks about Asset ABC. It's trying to really understand the fundamentals and then come up with an opinion based on that. So respectable journalists like in other avenues of their trade get crypto so wrong. So no doubt there's fraud in the market. But, you know, we're trying to create money outside of the purview of government. And that is interesting, is it not? Or, you know, that people are fed up with institutions and want to reduce dependence on third parties. I mean, is that not interesting? Like you said, we'll link to the, the Coursera video, but there's like some basic fundamentals that these mainstream outlets get wrong. Yeah. Right now, it's a lot of tabloid journalism where they're entirely focused on like how it was used with the Silk Road or ICO fraud or, you know, just things that are very catchy like that without really knowing how anything works. Right. When you talk about skepticism here, do you mean skepticism by the media outlets or like the readers of those mainstream outlets? Uh, the readers. You know, you said... Uh, People want to are fed up with institutions, want to reduce dependency on third parties. Yeah. I was thinking mainly in terms of the readers, which is also what's going to affect what the journalists put out. You know, I think a lot of people don't think or care about it. And then especially, you know, I've been traveling and I've been talking to a lot of people on blockchain that have no prior knowledge. It really takes a lot of effort to get people past this, like, it's just made up money. And why can't I can just make my own? And, you know, these sorts of questions that people have right away when they hear the idea of digital money. And the fact that we've had so much Bitcoin or blockchain coverage, especially over the last year with prices rising and so many retail investors involved and a lot of these same people haven't gotten past the fact that it's made up money is a like failure of journalism. And then, you know, coming back to your point about money outside the purview of government, if we look back to like, I remember, you know, when the Arab Spring stuff was going on, there was a ton of hype around how Twitter was used, how some of these uh, uh, privacy tools like Tor were used, you know, journalists were using them and they got really behind it. And we're not seeing the same sort of thing for uh, blockchain technologies, even though they can really help with a lot of the same sorts of problems. Yeah. So the consequence of the first two issues, one, that there's just unprofessional media outlets, and then number two, that mainstream media outlets are not acting professionally. Yeah, not acting professionally either, is that you end up with well-meaning, crypto-focused media outlets. The third issue here with reporting is that these crypto-focused media outlets that are well-meaning, they often report on the same thing over and over again. So Goldman does something, they're all over it. The New York Department of Financial Services say something, they're all reporting on it. Fidelity adds custodianship, they're all pumping out articles about it. And I'm not saying these topics aren't interesting or important. That Fidelity has added custodianship, that's a pretty big deal. What should the reporting of that be? That reporting should be, okay, they added custodianship. Their plan is that it should have like 5 million under management next year, 100 million, a billion. Like, what's the plan, guys? Just because they're offering the product doesn't mean it's necessarily going to work. That's what the reporting should be. Again, like these topics, it isn't that they aren't interesting or important. They are. But the downside of it is that it creates bias. And 
There is an upshot, though. And the upshot is that it creates a lot of opportunity for investors. Yeah. And, you know, one comparison, I guess, I'd make is I follow a lot of car related news. And, you know, whenever GM or Ford or what have you announces something, they'll put out a press release and all of the outlets will essentially paraphrase the press release and put it out, which is fine. But then there's a follow up where they like review the car. They talk about the implications of the market, whether what's good, what's bad, whether it'll do well or not. And a lot of that is what's lacking in the crypto space. Other than just parroting the press release, you don't see much follow on analysis uh, happening. Yeah. And who's going to make all the money in the space is the people who care about that follow-on analysis. I mentioned before, the upshot is that if everyone's reporting the same thing, there's an opportunity for investors. So this is how this works. So typically in markets, when everyone thinks one way and the market moves another way, people who take the controversial side end up profiting handsomely. So you see stuff like this in prediction markets. Uh, I think it was a shock to everyone that Trump won the election, for example. The prediction markets at the time... Uh, had ridiculous payouts for for his win. So that is an example of a market that everyone thinks is one way, but ends up happening uh, a different way. So another example is the, in traditional stock market, is that uh, is alternative energy in the late 2000s. So the mainstream public and a lot of investors thought it was going to be the next big thing. And it might might still turn out to be. It's not the end of the story just yet. But smart investors knew that governments were going to start pulling subsidies at some point. And why does that matter? Because the major reason alternative energy stocks did so well during this period of time, you know, many of them went up like 10x over the course of a few years, was that that governments were giving them subsidies to install, for example, uh, solar panels or wind farms on their land. And once those subsidies went away, there was no financial reason to actually continue doing that. So a very small group of people were the ones who predicted that were going to happen. But they were the ones who ended up winning that side of the trade, the ones who took the contrarian angle, that subsidies were going away. As a result, alternative asset prices were going to get clobbered. Another example that this is a pretty well-known one is the credit bubble and eventual crash. So this was one back in 2008, 2009. You know, 90% of the market thought the economy was fine. But you know, houses being sold left and right... Uh, a lot of the U.S. GDP associated with like housing. So, but a smart, small group of insightful investors, you know, guys like John Paulson, Michael Burry, Steve Eisman, you know, they took the contrarian bet that the credit bubble wouldn't last. And then the market crashed and they made a killing. This is the open secret that contrarian bets create the best investment opportunities. You just have to make sure you're actually contrarian and not just in an echo chamber. That's why crypto media sometimes feels like an echo chamber. I think a lot of them think they're contrarian, uh, but they're actually not. So these crypto-focused outlets focus on a handful of stories. Uh, I subscribe to a bunch of the newsletters, but you know, a lot of them are interesting. Um, I think there's good writing in a handful of them, and and they do report on some interesting stuff. But they're all covering the exact same news. I would be willing to take a bet that 90% of these outlets report on 90% of the same news. So that leaves a lot of room for uncovered topics to get covered. This comes to mind because like if you go through our dashboard, there are literally thousands of alerts that come in daily. You know, we have 50, 60,000 alerts come in per month. We can spend five minutes looking at the dashboard, search for something like bug fix or vulnerability. And there are tons of opportunities to learn about things the market doesn't broadly know or care about. And a lot of trade opportunities as a result. 
So we should actually probably be selling the dashboard to journalists too, so they can actually do their job. Yeah, and definitely even going through the dashboard, you do see that like noise and repetition where you'll, you'll see an article come out and over the next couple of hours, a lot of iterations of the same information from different sources. But one of the nice things is that rather than having to go to each source and read the article, you can just see the summaries very quickly. And then what I usually do is I'll look at a few of the summaries and whichever one looks well-written, then I'll go read that article. And so it speeds up the process a little bit of filtering through some of this stuff. Yeah. One of the big news things that came through and it actually has not gotten enough coverage that, and it should, is the uh, Monero fee breakthrough. Yeah. Ben DeFrancesco, who we had on an earlier podcast, has a weekly newsletter, and that's where I, I saw this. But basically, Monero has implemented bulletproofs, which has resulted in, I think, something like a 96% drop in transaction cost, which is a, a big deal in and of itself, but also has dramatically increased the privacy of their transactions. Because if you look at what Monero is, it, they're you know, statement is that they want to be secure, private, and untraceable. And so the addition of these bulletproofs have really uh, helped them on that. So first, I want to talk a little bit about how Monero transactions actually work. Because to really make it properly untraceable, you need to be able to obfuscate the sender, the receiver, and the transaction amount, which it's not an obvious solution. The first piece is the idea of a ring signature. This Digital Asset Research uh, wrote a really good article breaking all this down in much more technical detail, and we'll link to that in the show notes. But I want to quote from them, uh, Ring Signature. So, the true sender of a message combines his or her own signature with multiple other signers to create a unified digital signature. Rather than a single identity, this unified digital signature represents a group. So, what's interesting about this is from the perspective of an outside observer, each signer in a group has equal chances of being the real signer. And so for Monero specifically, they call these uh, mixins. What they do is they have decoy signers pulled from historical transactions. So you don't actually have to get like eight people to sign a transaction. You can just use seven that were there uh, historically. So these are real signers that existed? Yeah. So you're actually pulling it out from the history of transactions. So this decoy signer is called a mixin. Previously, Monero didn't have a minimum, so you could have a ring signature that only had one signature. And what they found was this is bad for everyone because if you can identify one you know, link in the chain, then it becomes easier to figure out what's, where things have been flowing. As of this change, the uh, minimum count has been moved up to seven. And that's not to say you can't have an even larger number, but this has you know, dramatically increased uh, the privacy of the sender. Just to repeat, what is the seven exactly? This is the, the number of other signatures? Yeah, the decoy signers. So before I could just have a ring of one where I would be the signer and I'd have no decoys. So it's very clear that I was the one that initiated this transaction. Uh, now, when I'm creating this uh, ring signature, I can pull in seven other decoys. And then, uh, you know, there's essentially from an outside observer a one in eight probability that they identify who the sender was, but there's no actual way to verify that it's one of those eight or which of those eight it is. You can only verify that it is one of those eight. So the actual choice of the other signatures that happens programmatically, right? It's not like you're choosing them. Yeah, exactly. So whatever 
tool you're using to actually initiate the transaction will go pull them out from from the history. I'll put this in the show notes, but I believe that it's somewhat random, but I'll follow up on that. So the second item is uh, actually making the transactions uh, confidential. And the digital asset research article gets into the technical bits of this because there is quite a lot to it, but I'll just give a very general overview. Basically, it allows multiple decoy inputs to be aggregated through addition. This guarantees that one of the encoded inputs is spendable valid and that the sender is not double spending funds or creating XMR out of thin air. So similarly to how we had ring signatures for who the sender is, we're essentially doing the same thing for uh, our transactions where there's this aggregate transaction and one of the transactions in there is valid. You cannot create a double spend due to some uh, mathematical properties of how this is created. But again, there's no way for an observer to know which is the like real transaction. The last piece is uh, stealth addresses. So you know we have the idea of obfuscating who the sender is, obfuscating the which is the exact correct transaction. And then the third piece is obfuscating the receiver. So before broadcasting an XMR payment, the sender combines the receiver's public keys with a random number in a key generating algorithm that creates a one-time key. The addition of randomness obfuscates the receiver's address, but the receiver can still identify it once the transaction has been sent to the network. So the only the true receiver can do that by scanning the blockchain for a specific data point called the key image the receiver will have their secret key and there's some function that allows them to verify that that key image was the one associated with their public key. And also one of the properties of this key image is that it will not allow for double spending. So when you add these three things together, you get this high degree of uh, privacy in a Monero transaction. So this is, you know, this was already there in Monero. So now we can get into how bulletproofs, like what they add. Monero has what's called non-interactive zero-knowledge proofs. So a zero-knowledge proof is basically a way to cryptographically prove that something exists without knowing what that something is. This is achieved through a set of challenges that, if completed successfully, can statically prove that a party has a secret without knowing what that secret is. Right. I mean, that's a pretty powerful uh, concept on its own. Yeah. The, the one thing that jumps out to mind to me is the whole idea of patent versus trade secret, where, you know, right now, if you patent something, it, it becomes public or you can try and keep it as a trade secret. But with, with something like a zero knowledge proof, you, you can really have both. You can prove that you came up with some idea first or that you said something first without having to show anyone what it is. Right. That, that would be a really interesting application of that. I wonder how that would end up working. We should definitely like talk about that one more and maybe look into, because that seems like a pretty like reasonable uh, real world application of it. Yeah, I'm sure there's an ICO out there with a white paper that we can look up and read. Okay, so going back to the bulletproofs. So we have these zero knowledge proofs. You know, we had talked about the confidential transactions. So the specific scheme that Monero uses is called ring CT, CT being confidential transaction. And it generates a lot of what are uh, range proofs. Basically, they guarantee that the transaction amount is within a certain range, such as a non-negative number. 
Uh, and these are somewhat time consuming to verify. But what the bulletproofs allow you to do is confirm the validity of the range proofs in aggregate. So rather than having to verify all of the range proofs of a given, you know, bring confidential transaction, you can just verify that the whole batch is correct. So that dramatically brings down the computational cost of doing so. And the really big thing here is that it allows transactions on the network to scale logarithmically rather than linearly. As volume increases, the effects of this will become even more beneficial. That's pretty dramatic. What is the range proof again? Help me understand that. So a range proof is basically a proof that the amount that's committed within a transaction is within a certain range and is not a negative number. Okay. So they go into the specifics of how Monero transaction is created. Rather than being encrypted, they're uh, encoded using something called a Peterson commitment. And essentially, when you use a Peterson commitment, this range proof is a byproduct. And so by having this batch of range proofs that you can very quickly verify, it essentially verifies the whole batch of transactions as well, which has been the, the scaling benefit that we've seen. And you know, one other thing I'd like to note is uh, Monero's not the sole currency with, with this idea of zero knowledge proofs. Zcash, you know, and there is also trying to solve the same problem, but going about it slightly differently. So what's neat about Monero is that there's no trusted process that has to take place to get this degree of privacy. In Zcash, you have zero knowledge proof, but they have this like parameter generation process that requires trusted parties called the powers of Tau. And so in theory, if that trusted parameter generation process is compromised, then your privacy would be compromised. And in Monero, you, you don't have this powers of Tau process. Yeah, you know, a lot of detractors of Zcash have said that's a big issue. I think some have claimed that it might be a perpetual issue that the original ceremony, um, if there was a flaw in the original ceremony, it would be devastating you know, down the line if Zcash ended up becoming a giant currency. So what Monero is doing here is pretty interesting. Yeah. I mean, my personal view on most of these sorts of things is to never deal in absolutes. So like, I don't believe that any coin is completely private. I just assume that you're increasing the probability of privacy by taking all of these measures. But there's always a chance that something has gone wrong. There's a bug in the implementation. Or also, like, privacy is time dependent. Like, how long do you have privacy for? Because we don't know what may be able to be done 5, 10, 15 years down the road. Yeah, I mean, what is computing going to look like in 20 years? Right. Like, even, you know, you look at Bitcoin, everyone thought Bitcoin was private at one point, or anonymous. And that we've seen that, you know, by essentially tracking transactions, people have been able to somewhat de-anonymize a lot of transactions on the blockchain. So it's just one, you know, something to keep in mind. And just mathematically, as time progresses, there will be more and more data to, to mine and try to find uh, meaning behind. Like if you have 20 years of Bitcoin history versus five years of Bitcoin history, you can say much more about the network, of course, right? Right. So the privacy is just super interesting. It feels like a constant battle. It's just because just it's private now, it doesn't mean it'll be private in the future. Yeah. Hey everyone, this is Vikram again. Thanks for listening to us. If you are an exchange, a trader, or working on a crypto project, get in touch with us. 
You can reach us on Twitter at Quantlayer, that's Q-U-A-N-T-L-A-Y-E-R, or email me at Vikram at Quantlayer.com. That's V-I-K-R-A-M, like Monero, at Quantlayer.com. I will write back. And if you like our podcast so far, please hit subscribe and rate and review us because that would help us a lot. Thanks. Thanks.